Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Doesn't the new bell sound nice? So uh, I want to dedicate the the talk tonight to James Hillman. James Hillman was a a mentor of mine. And uh, he passed away two two days ago. And uh, I don't know how many of you know uh, his work, but he was a real maverick American psychologist who took over the Jung Institute after Jung died in Zurich. And um, I I feel sometimes that probably about a quarter of the way that I think is shaped by uh, the shape of his mind. I think we all have that sometimes where we recognize how we think has a kind of logic in it that we've really learned. And I I learned from him so much. And... um, Uh, I I went to go uh, study with him when I just thought that Western psychology was uh, a disaster. And he he taught me to just rethink what I thought of psychology in really profound ways. And it's interesting that he passed away because, uh, I don't know if you remember, in September I kept saying we should study James Hillman, we should study an article or something so in the new year, when we're done chapter three, if we ever get to the end of it, um, we'll study some of the work. Sometimes I, I feel really sad about it, and sometimes I don't feel so much. And, but we've lost a really important person in the world. And the interesting thing about James Hillman, and you have this in every movement, where there's a person in a movement who isn't the person who gets famous, and he was really like one of those people who influenced so many people but was kind of underground in many ways, except he was on Oprah once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because when he wrote that book, The Soul's Code, it really took off. You know? um, my, I, I have a few powerful memories about him. One was, I, I told him once that I really felt like psychology, he had just written a book called We've Had a Hundred Years of Psychotherapy and the World is Getting Worse, <laughs> about how all the sensitive people he knows are all in therapy, not politics. And he thought this was a real problem and was going to lead to apathy um, in the culture. And, and I, I said to, I, I talked about how I felt this way, one, you know, and 
And he told me that one time when he left Zurich and he moved to Texas, he had this dream where he was doing psychoanalysis, which he did, and his patient was on the couch, and then he looked over and the patient wasn't there, then the couch wasn't there, then the wall wasn't there, and what was there was Atlantic City, which is where he was born, which was all uh, a strip of casinos. And he was doing psychoanalysis on the city, and he knew that he should stop being a psychotherapist. And that now he should devote the rest of his life to using psychology on the world. And he started doing a lot of work looking at environmental issues like apathy and denial from a psychoanalytic perspective. And he really pioneered that, that field of taking psychology out of the clinic and out of like the skin bag. You know. So anyways, I'm not going to talk too much about him other than that, but... Really, he was a, such a such a great person, um, inspiring, had a good attitude. Okay, so this is for him. <laughs> um, we've been studying Chapter Three of the Yoga Sutra. This is Talk Number Six, according to my calculation. Although I could be wrong, it feels like doesn't feel like Talk Number Six, does it? it feels like we're at twenty or thirty for sure. <laughs> Um, and we've just been going line by line studying this text. This text is uh, probably about 2,200 years old. was written in Sanskrit. We've been studying it word by word, line by line. Tonight we're going to move uh, kind of into a section that's sort of, I think, a couple of paragraphs rather than lines. Uh, but just to sum up, uh, one of the things Patanjali has been teaching is that the only way we can experience our life is moment by moment. You, you can't experience your life outside of these pixelated moments that when you slow down, and meditation practice is a form of slowing down, you see the way that those moments are constructed. And you also start to recognize that consciousness, what we think of as consciousness, is actually a product of the coming together of our senses and the world. Okay? So, each new instant, which he calls a kshana, which we translated as a moment, but it's actually shorter than a moment. It's just this. Um, each new kshana of unfolding consciousness orients towards or away from stillness. Okay? This is a really important piece. And he calls these samskaras. So that when you're sitting still and you're practicing equanimity and not reacting and not you know, analyzing and theorizing, then you're actually shaping our neuropsychology. And as we talked about in terms of neuroplasticity a couple of weeks ago, we're also shaping our culture. Um, because when you're working... Um, neurologically, you're also working socially, right? Um, you're affecting the genetic code, actually, in each moment of experience. And as this is happening, we're starting to shape an intention or shape a groove that's moving consciousness towards stillness or away from stillness. And it's actually to th interesting to think about how you use your mind during the day and which way you're going. 
Uh, you can't go toward and away from stillness at the same time. Um, and so, you know, in a way, uh, each moment of being still and cultivating non-reactivity is a moment of cultivating a new pattern or, or a new way of life. And as consciousness is permeated by longer and longer chains of tranquil moments, distractions start dissipating and something new arises which Patanjali calls ekagrata, which sounds like Italian or something, doesn't it? Or is that grappa? No, that's Greek. <laughs> is grappa Greek or Italian? Italian. Oh, we'll say it together. Eka, grata. So eka is one, grata is a point. So one-pointedness. So we were saying that one of the difference between you know most of the mindfulness practices that we do, which Patanjali calls the sixth and seventh limb of yoga, and samadhi, which he calls the eighth limb of yoga, the difference is that there's enough concentration happening where the hindrances or the obstacles are not penetrating consciousness. Does that make sense? Sort of? Yeah. So, so, so there's enough focus and enough momentum in that focus and, in, and in many chains of moments of tranquility that start building where there's a momentum of tranquility rather than the momentum or the force of distraction. And the example we used a few weeks ago that many of you have commented on is for most of us when we're meditating, it feels like you're on an arc at the top of the arc, constantly slipping off into the hindrances or distractions or laziness or espresso. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what happens over time is the arc actually shifts and instead of constantly slipping off, you're held in the arc. And when distractions come, you easily move back into concentration. So the difference between uh, what we call meditation and concentration on the one hand and samadhi on the other hand is that in samadhi, you're in the arc, right? In the concave shape rather than the convex shape. And you're held there and there aren't distractions coming. Okay. And this is good territory to know, I think, to articulate. Some people might think, oh my God, what am I doing in my practice? I've never touched that. And probably you have actually touched that. But it's good to see the map, because then you can kind of get a sense, I think, of where you're really at. You know? um, so in the first chapter of the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali used two terms, abhyasa and vairagya. Abhyasa means practice, and vairagya means letting go. Do you remember this, anybody? Abhyasa vairagya byam, tanirodaha, he says. So abhyasa is practice, the effort of practice, and vairagya is the practice of letting go. And it occurred to me that this is actually where this shows up in terms of formal meditation practice. That in limbs six and seven, Dharana and dhyana, which I'm translating as, you know, mindfulness and concentration. That's abhyasa. That's the effort of practice. It, it takes effort and a lot of intention to kind of hold ourselves there and keep coming back moment to moment to moment. But the difference with that and samadhi or integration is that integration is the vairagya, 
Sounds like Viagra, doesn't it? <laughs> Which is letting go. Okay. Maybe this is where they got the name. Um, so I'm just going to read a couple of lines here. Um, or actually, maybe somebody else can read, um, starting at line nine. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Starting at line 10 uh, until line 16. Uh, Lori, do you want to start line 10, and then we can just sort of move around? Sure. We'll, we'll move maybe back in, in space. In, in English? Yeah, let's do English tonight. <laughs> just, I, I thought Italian would be nice, but Cassandra, I haven't le- got lessons yet. So. Okay. Um, these latent impressions help consciousness flow from one tranquil moment to the next. Sure, you can do line 11 and then Cassandra 12. Consciousness is transformed towards integration as distractions dwindle and focus arises. In other words, consciousness is transformed towards focus as uh, continuity develops between arising and subsequent perception. Consciousness evolves along the same three lines, form, time span, and condition, as the elements and the senses. Oh, let, let's stop there, actually. So the next one is... Whew. Um, okay. Consciousness is transformed towards samadhi as distractions dwindle and focus arises. Do, uh, did I cut, do you feel like we've covered that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, he says it again, <laughs> consciousness is transformed. So there's a sense that consciousness is not this thing, that, it, that it's, it's this momentary pixelated, um, uh, conditioned phenomenon, okay? And it's transformed towards focus as continuity develops between arising and subsiding perceptions. Then, line 13. Consciousness evolves along the same three lines, form, time, span, and condition, as the elements and the senses. In other words, chitta, consciousness, is made up as the same stuff as nature. Therefore, it changes along the same axis as everything else. In his commentary on the Yoga Sutra in the 5th century, there's a wonderful uh, commentator named Vyasa who says, All matter is like clay. It may be cycled through many forms, dispersed, collected, shaped, glazed, fired into a pot, or broken into shards and dispersed once again. In other words, uh, clay has a lifespan, a visible or knowable form, and a set of conditions. Okay, so like the conditions, when we say conditions, that you could have a clay pot and the conditions could be it's in this family right now, or it's in the sunlight right now, 
or it's hot right now. Okay? It has a visible form and it has a time span. Okay? So he's saying everything, whether it's the elements or the senses or even consciousness, all exist in this way. They have a, it has a time span, it has form, and, it has, uh, con- and it's in conditions. In other words, consciousness is conditioned. Okay? This is kind of a, a really interesting thing to explore. Uh, consciousness is actually not separate from conditions. It's born of conditions. This is very different than how we think about it in the kind of Descartes model, where consciousness is sort of this thing that exists. Because there's consciousness, I can see across the room. No, you can see across the room because there's eyes and there's a room. And they come together to create this experience of consciousness. Okay? Um, the substrate is unchanged whether before, during, or after it takes a given form. So clay can survive as a pot for 60 years, and then it goes through many conditions, clean, dirty, new, old, wet, dry, in one family or another family. And the sequence determines how the thing unfolds, but through all the changes, it's never not clay. Right? It still goes back to clay. Um, So by asserting that a substance is substantial, Patanjali is refuting the Buddhist doctrine of the time that matter is a projection of the mind. So at that time in India, it's important to know that, and I think this is actually not in line with how the Buddha taught, but there became a strong movement that everything is in your mind. It's like the movement right now with people who are like really lefty and spiritual saying, there's no 1%. We have the one per, the 1% is just in us. We're all 1%. And it, it's sort of when you take something just a little too far. <laughs> right? Structurally, there's a 1%. And yes, we have all the same qualities, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a 1%. Does, it, does this make sense? Uh, I remember, actually, I'm thinking of James Hillman now. James Hillman tells a story of somebody passes a homeless person on the street, goes up into the office for their therapy session and talks to their therapist about what the homelessness person brought up for them and they find all the different feelings homelessness has brought up and maybe their own inner homeless person and Hillman says meanwhile they walk past the homeless person (laughs) doing all this internal work on the homeless person and they walk right past them and this is the problem and in a way this is kind of what Patanjali is saying that Buddhism at the time of the Yoga Sutra, at the time of Patanjali, was in what's called the Yogacara school, which is basically everything is in your mind. And he's trying to kind of pull back from that a little bit and saying, no, it's not all in your mind. Um, He's saying that all appearances are compound in nature And therefore, they're fundamentally, and this is where it's the same as the Buddha's teaching, they're fundamentally unsatisfactory, unreliable, impermanent, and impersonal. Okay? In other words, whatever, and so you have to sort of get into the feeling. Can you feel the feeling? So you're concentrated, right? Deep concentration. And we're talking about a level of samadhi where not too much else is coming in. 
Okay? Just really one with breathing, one with sound. And, and it feels good, actually. And those of you who've been on retreat, you know this, this feeling. And then uh, there's not too much analysis going on. And then you start to see that every mood that comes in is unsatisfying, unreliable, impermanent, yeah, and impersonal. That what happens, see, this is the difference between mindfulness and concentration. In mindfulness, there's still a me that everything is coming back to. There's there's still a strong sense of self. But when that starts to dissolve a little bit, uh, there's a sense where you start to not refer the moods that you feel back to a you that feels them. They're just moods. And then you start to see consciousness is the same thing. It's changing. It's unreliable. In other words, you can't rely on it to get happy. And it's impersonal. And maybe you can learn a deep lesson here, which is that nothing belongs to you. Wouldn't that be amazing to actually have a mood come in and not let it be personal? Could any of you picture that in your domestic life? No. I didn't think so. (laughs) Um, So a memory can materialize. So let's say you um, uh, are sitting and then a certain smell comes in from the kitchen. And then it triggers a memory, right? Maybe the smell is like, I don't know, miso broth, bonito broth or something. No, it wouldn't be bonito on retreat. What is it? What's the smell? It could be miso. Miso. You smell miso, and then it triggers a memory, and then the body is in a mood, and all this happens, and you can notice in that moment how it's fleeting and it's impersonal. Yeah? So there's kind of this distance from experience, even though it's being felt. Um, by the time your thought catches up with it, um, It's something else. And this is the funny thing about thoughts, is that they can't actually catch the thing. Right? By the time you catch up to the, oh, it's miso, it reminds me, it's turned into something else already. And unless you're really still, you can't see that. Because when you're busy, the thoughts seem to match things a little better. And then in, in quietude, you can see that the thoughts keep missing. They don't match up in time. Um, And then you can see that the seeming stability of experience is an illusion. That, That what we think of as stable is not stable in the way we think it is. Um... And then something happens where consciousness settles and behind it there's a knowing. And there's a knowing that doesn't take the shape of what's known. And this is a little hard to describe because as soon as I say there's a knowing behind things, the mind automatically thingifies it and says, oh, it's a thing. 
Does, does this make sense? So there's a knowing behind knowing. Yeah. And it's still. It's there all the time. I think on, on the five-day intensive, I think we did a little exercise that's kind of fun to do, which is we can just try it. It takes two seconds. So, um, so while I'm talking, try not being aware. So don't be aware of the light in the room. Don't be aware of the smell in here. Uh, don't be aware of the visual form. And you can see how you, it's not possible. You can't not have this awareness, right? But Patanjali says there's an awareness that's behind consciousness. Uh huh. And then he does this funny thing where he gives it a name, person, Purusha, person, which is basically you. That actually you are behind consciousness, but not the you who you think is you. As soon as you go, oh yeah, that's the real me. No. No, no. So this, and, and Patanjali does this a lot where he takes this, and the Buddha loved doing this, where he takes like a common word at the time, like person, and he reworks it to mean something else. Um, and so that deep knowing, I like to think of it as a, it's the teacher in you that never leaves. Or it's the teacher you never leave. It's, it's knowing, it's a, it's a deep knowing of something. It's wisdom, actually. And it's not separate from you. Mm-hmm. But you can't think your way there. And that's what's so fascinating about meditation. Um, everything else is just stuck in time not flowing in time. Uh, the breath is, is like this. The breath is thick with time. And time also is thick with breathing. And when we're concentrating, that's the same thing. Um, I thought there could be a homework practice that we could do, and maybe this is something you could try, which is to look at things that you call things and see them as moments in time. Look at a wall, look at a friend. You see, when I see Elaine, I don't really see her as a moment in time. It's like, oh, it's Elaine, and she's been around. And I don't mean it that way. <laughs> she's been around here for a lot of years. and. Um, Because of that time we've had, it's easy for it not to be fresh, right? Um, so how can I experience Elaine just in a moment of time? And maybe this is something we can all try a little bit together with people that we know or with things that we have, maybe as a way to cultivate appreciation, you know, to really see things as a moment in time. But also when things get hard, you know? When a mood sets in or some pain arises, a moment in time. A moment in time. Um, and then you can see that things really die. 
Pe- people really die. Um, we die suddenly. Uh, people who are close to us die young. Uh, in war. And nobody knows when. Scott Olson, last week in Oakland, protesting in Occupy Oakland, he, 24 years old, he, was, uh, he served in Iraq and in, in Afghanistan, came home, turned 24, very traumatized, and decided he, he couldn't be part of the military anymore. And he actually felt that as soon as he went over, even though he served two missions overseas. So he joined a group that supported Occupy Oakland. And he showed up to protest. And from about two meters away, uh, a policeman shot a rubber bullet at his head. Um, and in the video, it, 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 the, the, the policeman points point blank right at his head, uh, cracks open his skull, and then he went unconscious. He's still in a coma. Um, and they say he doesn't have much likelihood of surviving. 24 years old. Or maybe you've had this in your life where suddenly you realize somebody close to you is just a moment in time. And if you don't have that happening, you need to have that happening. Because otherwise we forget uh, the love that's possible when we experience everything as a moment in time. And the freedom that's possible when we even experience what's painful as a moment in time. Um, And I don't know, I've been thinking about death a bit the past couple of days. Uh, Because I've been thinking a lot about James Hillman, especially this one detail about how he was still working through some ideas right up until when he died. He was still writing. Um, And, you know, when death comes... The only thing that's important is your heart and what's going on. Everything you've accomplished, all the art you've made, whether your years have been relevant or not, uh, all the investments that you have, like not, none of that matters in the moments when you're dying. The only thing that matters is your heart. And so when Patanjali says Purusha, pure awareness, that stillness that you touch, you can substitute that word for your heart. Maybe back then it was wild to call pure awareness a person. Maybe we should just now call it our heart. That's what they would have done in China. Your heart. Um, that's, that's what we really meet when we die. Uh, a couple weeks ago I used the term remaining human. That's whether we know if we can really remain human. Like, can we be dying and really forgive people? Or forgive ourselves? We're so annoying to ourselves, you know. Can, when you're dying, can you just forgive yourself? And then as Anyan Rinpoche will say when he comes, if you can do it when you're, if you're learning how to do it for when you're dying, you might as well do it today. And that's kind of a real, it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> I could actually practice this right now. Um, so what do you think? Do you think this is possible to um, do this practice of actually seeing? This is a very deep concentration practice, but also just trying it in domestic life. 
of seeing everything as a moment of time. Do you, do you think? Do you think we could do this? No. You, it's a little dull enthusiasm. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to try it. I'll let you know how how it goes. Um, and I don't know. I, this is for me personally. This is why I come here on Tuesdays. I feel like I, I come here and I sit still. And when I sit still, it goes to the bottom line. It's like you really see what's in your mind. Or you realize you can't even see what's in your mind. Because you're so busy, you know, thinking about your coworker and what a jerk she is. And, you know, why you didn't get a promotion. And whatever it is you're obsessed with. Instead, to see this in a moment in time. Um, the... The, the world is so amazing. And it's mostly amazing because it doesn't last. Right? Isn't that what's so amazing about things? Is they're amazing because they don't last. And the, the body is amazing exactly because it's vulnerable. And it doesn't last. And... I think this is why we appreciate each other. Because somewhere under our confusion, we know this is true. Um, when I work with people who are in pain, one of the concentration practices I do with them is when they exhale to actually vocalize the exhale and just go, you want to try that? Just, it's not like, oh, (laughs) just like when you inhale, then to exhale and just, And do you feel how you can really feel the exhale when you do that? Try it again. Just exhale. And one time I was teaching this to a guy named Jerry while he was dying. Uh, Elaine worked with him too. Yeah. What's that? I saw yesterday. Oh, you did? Okay. He was such a beautiful person. I taught him this, this practice when he was dying. I used to go sit with him for 40 minutes in the hospital every couple days. Uh, he was there, I think, almost for five weeks. And we used to do this. It's the whole practice that we did. I didn't talk to him about anything. Well, he didn't, he didn't want to talk about death. He, he, just, he wanted to just practice this. And, um and he could really do it. Like he would get it, and he just go. And um, one time he finished the end of his exhale, and then he just said, "That's so beautiful." And I said, "What's beautiful? The practice? It's beautiful." He said, "No, no, not the practice. Like what I see at the end of the exhale. It's really, really beautiful." And then he died the next day. It's so interesting with James Hillman's death. I have a good friend named Koshin who runs a place in New York called the Zen Center for Contemplative Care. And this and, and he works he does palliative care work 
he, he's a, a, a Zen priest, and he goes, and I said to him the summer, I'm like, you know, James Hillman's dying. I can't believe it. He said, I'm his chaplain. And it was just this funny turn of events where my good friend ended up being James Hillman's uh, chaplain, and he worked with him preparing for death. And so this is all to say that all these practices that we're working with, they're really practical. Like when you're in pain, you'll remember this. I hope it's okay to say one time Jack was in the hospital and he said, oh, I finally did the breathing practice. <laughs> and it really helped him. You know? And there's so many stories like this where people, you know, don't take this as philosophy. This is like textbook, right? Textbook. Like you go along and you learn the, the technique and, and you follow it. And then you can see that, I don't know, that so much of the time we just think life is miserable. And it's not miserable. It's just what we're doing with it. You know? And this is what that technique is trying to Trying, trying to point out. Um, so, Patanjali is talking about these levels of samadhi, and I'm trying to emphasize in my commentary that they're really practical, and I don't want you to make them esoteric. And then if you read our newsletter yesterday and Jack Cornfield's article about meditation, it was titled, Even the Best Meditators Have Wounds to Heal. Just like hate hearing that, you know. but there are like columns in meditation, and you can get into one column and really, really excel in it. But just because you do it in one column, it doesn't mean that you've done it in all the columns. So, getting really deep level of concentration might not actually do anything for your relationship column, you know. I don't know about you, but like the worst is coming off retreat and then like seeing people you don't like. <laughs> and then realizing, oh my God, the retreat didn't help at all. You know, I'm like, still completely worked up. Um, so I used to think that the way Samadhi was, it's like first like you're riding your bike and then you get into like a Ford and then it takes you forward. And then once you're like good in the Ford, then you get into like a Volkswagen. And then once you're like cruising down the Volkswagen vehicle, you like suddenly open up into like a Maserati. <laughs> and then you open up into like whatever the thing James Bond's driving now. I don't know what he's driving now. And, um, and that's not really how it is. Um, we keep circling around and circling around and circling around and we get deeper in certain levels. And then we have to apply those skills to the places where the column's not really... Um, where, where it needs attention. Um, and I also think socially, because Patanjali never talks about this, but socially, this also uh, settles our tendency to be consumers because we learn how to take care of what's going on in us. And then we don't need so much. Um, being a consumer is the antithesis of being a citizen. And I think this practice uh, helps create citizens. Maybe instead of purusha being person, it should be citizen. 
Um, and then you cultivate the real value that money can't ever buy. Just like when you're dying. Uh, whatever's going on for you there is not something you can get with money or privilege. And I would add, I guess, to that, because so many of you I know here are so engaged in the Occupy movement right now, that being a citizen actually doesn't mean anything unless it really collides with something. And uh, being a citizen is not really a living uh, thing until you have some responsibility and feel a sense of responsibility and want to shovel your neighbor's snow. Um, and that's how, that's how you bring concentration into the world. And if our intention's there, it will, it will happen. So I'm going to stop there, and maybe there are, are, are there's a few minutes for questions, comments. I hope my commentary tonight was satisfactory. Uh, it gets trippy in the next few weeks. <laughs> so are there any comments or questions? I, I've talked for almost 40 minutes. their existence is fleeting, but that existence is fleeting. Yeah. Yeah, some of you know Sarah Selecki, who, who's not here these days. She's moved to BC, but um, she's a writer, and, and she told me that one of the awareness practices she does as a writer is, and she, sometimes she'll spend hours doing this, at every moment having an attitude of, how would I write about this in three years? And you can imagine at first that's a bit clunky, but then you, you get a kind of feeling for it. It's like, how can I be here in a way where in three years I'll be able to write about this? And I think that's a really wonderful uh, exercise. It's a, so it's a little this, uh, of the same. But I would be careful in looking at it like, oh, you're dying. <laughs> so you don't look at it like time is passing or time is moving forward or time is in space or space is in time you, you just are aware of this moment in time as opposed to like <laughs> you know holding on sentimental maybe that will come up but that's also a moment in time just like death will be a moment in time. It's interesting how um, in line 13, um, it reads, consciousness evolves along the same three lines, form, time span, and condition. And, um, and as happening in Kshana's, where it's a sense object and sense organ, mm -hmm. where five of the six sense organs wouldn't have a sense of time 
Uh, yeah. So it seems like a mind. A mind thing. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those places. So Patanjali doesn't actually use the model of six senses. Um, that's the Buddhist interpretation of it. So um, consciousness really for Patanjali is just yeah. mind stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's why it can have a form time spanning condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Somebody else? Concentration, death, giving you some homework. I was just thinking of a nice little practice or a tip my dad always used to give me when I was anxious yeah. about something because he would always say, you know, if it was a big test tomorrow, he'd say, yeah. in two days, this will be over. Yeah. And I've always used that because I find it helpful. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I find a problem with that, though, you're enjoying it. Of experience, yeah. and then you lose it because you know in two days it'll be over. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Although, um, when we're enjoying an experience, it, it's it's slipping out from under us. That's what's so hard about you know, it's my party, right? It's like really great until you're like you realize it's in time. But when we say a moment, recognize something as a moment in time, don't superimpose on that. It's a moment in time that's almost over. It's just a moment in time. Don't do that thing where, remember we talked about Dogen? Time is passing. Time's not passing. There's a moment in time. As opposed to there's a moment in time and it's passing. There's just a moment in time. Well, we're going to chant that. So we'll just ruin that. Christine, <laughs> did you have your, your hand up? Yeah, I'm just wondering what the Buddhist academic community actually thinks about consciousness, about this interpretation, the Tantra's interpretation. What do they think of it now, today, since it's changed? I don't know. I think with consciousness. Is it emptiness? Well, everything that's form is emptiness. Uh, well, something can't be emptiness. Purusha is awareness. Uh, Tony Packer translates it as awareing. To give it a sense of like how awareness is functioning. The, the problem... So, so, so Buddhists wouldn't like that Patanjali gives it a name. Because as soon as you give awareness a name, you automatically reify it. And you think, oh, there's this thing called awareness. For me personally, I think sometimes it's really helpful to actually reify it. And remind people that actually there's an awareness that you can touch that doesn't judge, that doesn't analyze, that's just there all the time. Consciousness is all the stuff floating in front of awareness that you think is awareness most of the time. 
but it's not. It's like watching a movie. Uh, connected. Yeah, potentially he's saying that consciousness is made of the same stuff as nature. It has a form, time span, and conditions. So it's more than that. It's inter- it's interconnected, but it's the same stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Why are we trying to tell each other what Purusha is? That's Chitta. <laughs> right? Chitta is trying to figure out what Purusha is. Yeah. So this is the cool thing, is that Purusha can see Chitta, but Chitta can't see Purusha. It's kind of trippy. Right? Awareness can look at Chitta, but chitta can't actually figure out what awareness is. Because every time chitta tries to turn back and see what awareness is, it turns it into chitta. It makes more chitta. Sounds like shitta. <laughs> yeah, so traditionally in Indian philosophy, this is where you get this term neti neti, right? Which means not this, not that. Which I always think of sounds like naughty naughty. So it's like as soon as you go, oh, Purusha's this, Purusha's that the text or the teacher would say, neti, 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 (laughs) naughty, no, no, no. It's not this or not that, which in Western philosophy we'd call negation, right? No, 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 (laughs) bad lady. That's what Patabi Joyce used to always say, bad lady. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, This might be my... Chitta talking, but <laughs> the difference between consciousness and awareness. If you look at like certain events in life, and you you're at a point, and you're like, oh well, this had to happen in order for that to happen for me to get where I am now, mm-hmm. right? Looking at sort of the sequence of events, is that the consciousness or is that consciousness? Awareness? It's making sense, seeing a pattern, a sequence of events, it's consciousness. Making meaning is consciousness. And so where is the awareness in that? Behind the scenes. What's that? I said, yes, my chitta. Yeah. Could we make like a song kalpa to expand consciousness like you're talking about having each moment to moment getting longer tranquil moments yeah and so making that into a sankalpa yeah yeah I mean that's that's what Patanjali is saying I mean in a way that's what he's calling sankaras is that you can you can set the grooves by linking together moments of tranquility and then they hold you there for long periods of time. I, I can't do it, but in the fifth and sixth level of jhana, I have a friend of a friend, um, um, uh, 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 Shaila Catherine, uh, who wrote an incredible book uh, called Focused and Fearless. 
Fearless and Focused, which is the best book on concentration practice. She's a Buddhist meditator. And she can actually um, say to herself as an intention, I'm going to concentrate now for 40 minutes or an hour and 40 minutes. And that she's taught herself as a pattern to go into that, be fully in that without awareness of time, and that in an hour and 40 minutes to come out of it. It's pretty cool. Just like some of you might be learning if you sit every day, your body starts knowing the time that you sit. And you eventually don't have to time it anymore. You just know 30 minutes. You know 45 minutes. So that's pretty cool to do that in concentration, I think. I can't do that, but I don't even know if I want to do that. It's like the Olympics of meditation. (laughs) Except they're not teenagers. So what, one more question or comment, and then did, did you have one? Um, yeah. um, so if, if Chitta can't be aware, well, doesn't know about awareness, then uh-huh. awareness is aware of Chitta, yeah. how does this awareness manifest itself? It doesn't. So we don't experience it. Yeah, you experience it. <laughs> Prove to me that it's there. Prove to me that it's not there. <laughs> Can our <I> muscle? <laughs> Because, because you, because, no, 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 this isn't philosophy. This is a textbook about what happens when you're meditating. And when you're meditating and you're sitting there analyzing everything that comes in and judging it and having commentary in it, you think that that's awareness. Okay? But it's not. It's chitta. It's consciousness. It's consciousness taking the shape and reacting to all the stuff that's there. And then when all that settles, when consciousness starts settling, then there's an awareness behind it that is still, is clear like a mirror and just reflects whatever's there but doesn't take the shape. And this is what Patanjali is saying. And we all, we all know this. We've all had experience where you're, there's a really big sky awareness and there's no thoughts or like likes or dislikes. It's just completely aware. That's what Patanjali is saying. But don't buy it on faith. Um, I could be wrong. Patanjali could be wrong. But you have to check in your experience if that's the case. Is when the busy mind starts settling, is there no awareness? Does all awareness go away? No, it actually uh, increases. And you can actually take in much, much more. But it's very, very still. Mm-hmm. As opposed to everything just going black or something. Yes? Sorry, I knew that was supposed to be the last question. Oh, that's okay. This one's going to be really good. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that not paralyzing? Paralyzing? To rest in that awareness if it's still. And it's reflective of everything around you. Why is it not? Where is the intention to do anything? The intention to do anything? Um, I would say that when you follow it to some of the deeper levels, there's no intention. It's really just a very, very deep stillness, and there's no intention. Um, And in my own uh, theory and research, 
I, I think that actually it's the origin of ethics. That when there's that kind of stillness, there's an unshakable connection to all things. And I think that's actually where ethics comes from. Um, but, you know, potentially he's not saying that right now. But I think he does say that. So, in other words, the word samadhi means integration. It's when subject and object collapse and there's awareness, but the felt sense of awareness is, is an interconnectedness, a really deep sense of being interconnected, not of being dissociated or paralyzed. Um, and I think that actually gives rise to, to ethics. So that would be my response. But it depends who the person is. Some people, their path is really to go deep into those meditative states and, and, and um, you know, drop out, so to speak, and really follow that path. That's not my path. It's not the one I encourage too much either. Yeah. yeah. I also think, to add to that, that we become... Yeah. Um, consciousness makes us much more sensitive human beings. Yeah. And from that sensitivity, um, our actions arise. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. For sure. I also yes, and and that's how I look at it. Mm-hmm. But I also want to just you know keep alive, also, that Patanjali is also talking about a kind of stillness that doesn't lead to anything. And, and also just like neuropsychologically is a stillness where no new synapses are creating no new grooves. Neurons are not wiring together and firing together to be hip about it. Uh, and this is why the neuropsychologists at Madison University of Wisconsin and the Buddhists are like best friends because they hook all these really experienced meditators up for three-month retreats. Alan Wallace did this a few years ago, three-month retreat. Some of you were here. He came to Toronto and taught for three days all his research that he did. They had three groups doing three-month retreats. One was a control group. And this is what they did. They just monitored them in concentration practice. And you can actually see that over a couple after a couple of months of like all day every day in silence concentrating that actually some of the patterns in the brain which I can't I don't know the lingo um, actually just start settling and new grooves are not being met and then they're like aha they were right (laughs) and then it was like okay I'm glad we had nine million dollars to do that Let's finish chanting. And then next week, we're, next, uh, so the next line, if any of you want to read ahead, this is when Patanjali starts getting into the superpowers. <laughs>